Welcome, everybody. Glad you all made it through the winter frost here. As Ron said, we are starting a, a new series. I want to begin by talking about a bit of a guilty pleasure my wife and I have. We really kind of enjoy those cooking competition TV shows, you know, where somebody gets voted off every week by the judges. Anyone else like those kinds of the cooking shows? Yeah, I, I, they're crazy, and there's a lot of drama and all this other stuff. What really amazes me is how many times... Yeah, they have these guest chefs come on to judge the contestants and, and who has the best dish. And to watch the reactions of the contestants to some of these famous chefs. I never knew there was such a thing as a famous chef until I started watching this show. Because these, guys, these people show up and the contestants get all Twitter-pated. It's like, these are rock stars in their world. And when one of them says a kind word about somebody's dish, they just go to pieces. They lose it. She loved my dish. I can't believe she loved my dish. I mean, it's pretty amazing to see that kind of reaction. But it's understandable because we've all experienced that, I think, somewhere. Think back to a time when somebody who really mattered to you said something kind to you or about you in front of other people. Think about that time maybe the, the, the teacher or the professor singled you out in front of the entire class because your paper or your answer was just right. Think about the time the coach praised you because of the way you did that play or made that shot, whatever it was. All of a sudden, something happens inside when people who matter to us think highly of us and express that to us in front of others. There's just something powerful about that moment. I hope you're flashing back on times like that. Now, it matters when it's a parent or a professor or a coach, but think about this. What if it were God? What if God were the one saying to you, I like your life. I like the way you think. I like what you've done. What if God were the one singling you out and saying, that's good. What you did there pleases me. That would be amazing. And and, and we talked about that recently in a sermon John preached just three weeks ago. He brought a word out of a story that I've read over the years so many times, but he brought this one word out. You might remember the story from John 17. Jesus is asked to go heal a servant in the home of a centurion, a Roman centurion. And, and it, because he's invited, didn't matter, he was a Roman, off Jesus goes. And, and as he's traveling, he gets another message. That same centurion says, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come into my home, but you don't need to come into my home. I know how powerful you are. Say the word. And from a distance, my servant will be healed. I know that. And Jesus, it says, he marveled at the faith of the centurion. He even said, I've never seen this kind of faith anywhere in all of Israel. I haven't seen the kind of trust in me that was just expressed by this Roman. But what stood out, and John brought it out so beautifully, is Jesus was amazed. The phrase he used was, Jesus said, wow, look at this man's faith. Look at how he trusts me. Look at what he thinks of me. I want to be that kind of guy. Do you want to be that kind of person? Who doesn't want to be the kind of person about whom Jesus says, wow. If that exists, if those people exist on this planet, I want to be among them. I hope not because I'm proud, although I I admit I am. But I hope it's because I think that'll please God. It'll give him honor. It'll give him glory. I want my life to be one of the ones that that the Lord points to, like he did about Job with Satan. Hey, hey Satan, have you seen my my servant Job? I want God to be able to say, hey, Satan, have have you seen my servant Mike? Wouldn't that be amazing? 
if not a chef, not a professor, not a teacher, but God were to see us that way, I, I want that. I yearn for that. What does it take to get there? What would it take for us all to live that kind of life? Well, we don't have to guess. There's a whole chapter in the Bible full of those kinds of people. People about whom God will say by the time the chapter ends, after listing all these people, he's going to say the world was not worthy of them. You want to be in that group? I do. And we're going to spend five weeks looking at that chapter, five weeks studying those people. And not by coincidence, it's not an accident, they all are known for the same thing the centurion had. They're all held up by God himself because of their faith, because of the trust they had in God over the centuries of history of God's words. And I want to follow their example. That's why we're naming this series Example. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, Paul says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And that, that, that principle of, of following the examples of other people who've gone ahead of us is, is a solid one. It's an important one. And examples like the Apostle Paul are all over God's Word. We study them regularly. And a whole bunch of them are found in one chapter that we're going to spend five weeks on. Let's get to know a few of these people. Lord, would you show us who these people are, but mostly would you show us how we can follow in their footsteps? Because yes, Lord, we want to be among them. Would you make it happen through your spirit and through your word, in Christ's name, amen. We're going to be spending all this time, friends, in Hebrews chapter 11, and the big idea from today's focus is this, God is pleased with our lives when they become trust-filled walks with him. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11, would you, where all of these examples are found. Hebrews 11 is sometimes referred to as the hall of fame of faith. We won't use that terminology so much. We're going to use examples, but we're going to look verse by verse through this chapter for the next five weeks. I'll start reading at verse 1 today. And this gives kind of an overview. This sets the theme for the entire chapter, which means it sets the theme for our studies there. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and being certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Here it is. We, we, right out of the gate, we get the whole thrust of what's going on here. Faith, it says, is, is this, this assurance of what is hoped, confidence in what uh, we hope for, assurance about what we do not see. Now, we need to set the stage right from the start to understand faith. We're going to spend a lot of time on that word. What does it mean, really? Some of these abstract concepts aren't always easy to define, but let me give you an example. Faith has two parts. It has a part of agreement and a part of dependence. And to give you an example of that, I can look at this chair and say, you know what, this chair, as far as I can tell, seems pretty sturdy. This chair seems to be constructed to hold a person of my size. It's high off the ground, I like that. I believe, I trust that this chair could hold me. So far, I agree that this chair will do what it's designed to do. But until I act on that agreement, until I depend on the strength of the chair, I'm not really expressing faith. I'm just saying a principle I agree with. But once I sat down, now I'm depending on what I already thought was true. So agreement and dependence are both part of the faith that we're going to be studying in the lives of these people. And we need to make sure we exercise both. It's just one thing to say, I know God exists. I'm not an atheist. I don't dispute what the Bible says about God. I even agree with it. I am an intellectual assent to what is being said. 
But if that doesn't pass to dependence on what is said about him, then I'm just saying, yeah, the Bible's right. But it's not like I'm relying on it until I rest in it, until I sit on it, until I express my dependence on those things I agree with. So when we talk about faith in Hebrews 11, that's exactly what we're talking about. And and right out of the gate, this passage recognizes that as Christians, much of what we put our faith in is unseen and is hoped for. And when we have confidence and assurance of those, we are exercising faith. Let's face it. Much of what we count on, if you are a follower of Christ, is unseen and hoped for. We've never seen the virgin birth. We haven't seen the miracles of Jesus that we talk about and sing about all the time. We weren't there at the crucifixion. We weren't there when the stone rolled away and Jesus came out of the tomb. We, aren't, we believe Jesus is in heaven. We can't see him. We don't see the Holy Spirit. We, we, we hope for this future in heaven, but these are unseen and hoped for. And when we can say, yes, those are true, and I believe they're true, and I rely on their truth, then we are exercising the kind of faith Hebrews 11 is talking about. And the end of the passage points out that from the beginning, this is what God has commended. This is what God has said, that's good. When you trust me, whether it's the people of Israel or, or, or people from Gentile nations back in the days of Israel or people in our day here or in PV or in Jordan, wherever it happens, when we say, yeah, Lord, I, I trust you, I put my faith in you, God is pleased. That's a good thing. And that is the focus of this entire chapter. Now, from this overview, we're going to zoom in as we go ahead and read verses 3 and 4, because now begins the list. Now begins the examples of the different people who exercised enough faith over the centuries that God would say, this pleased me, this man, this woman, these matter. He says, first of all, by faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. So that what is seen is not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. Friends, we won't have time to dig into every single character mentioned in this chapter. We'd have to be spending 30 weeks uh, at least on the entire chapter. So we're going to skip over quickly some of the verses. These are a couple of them that we aren't going to spend time digging into. I do want to point out, though, that verse 3 uses really interesting language. That, that by faith, we understand the universe was formed at God's command. So that what is seen is not made out of what was visible. Isn't that right, brother? We have our creationist scientist down here in the second row. Kevin, I'm glad you're here today and celebrating this verse with us. That the language the scripture uses is really relevant today. That God spoke and what didn't exist now existed. We believe that. That faith honors God. Then he mentions Abel and Cain. We won't dig into that. But I do want to go on to the next character mentioned. Because the next character is a man I've always wanted to preach about. And never had the chance. (laughs) So this is a red letter day for me. Not just because of my 10 year friendship with our brother from Jordan. But because I get to preach on Enoch. Because here's what it says. By faith Enoch was taken from this life. So that he did not experience death. He could not be found. Because God had taken him away. What an interesting passage. What What a mysterious character. And some of you might be saying. Enoch who in the world is he? And what do you mean he didn't die? If you're wondering that, that's a very good question because we don't know much about this man. Some of the other characters we'll see in this chapter are well known. 
Daniel and, 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 and significant people who just showed great faith. And Enoch, there's really only three verses about him in the entire Bible. And they're kind of mysterious. We don't know much about what happened. In fact, his entire life is found in Genesis chapter 5. Turn back there with me if you would. In Genesis 5, we've got an unusual genealogy. Now, genealogies, if you're familiar with these passages in Scripture, they just name person after person after person, usually talking about who gave birth to who gave birth to who. And it's a way to trace time and generations in in a very short passage. But this genealogy, of all of the ones in Scripture, is really unique. Most genealogies simply say this person lived for this long and, and had this child. That child lived for this long and had this child. And you assume when it says they lived a certain amount of time, it's assumed that they died at the end of that time, right? If, you say, if I told you I know someone who lived 75 years, it's assumed that they died at the end of the 75 years. But this passage goes a little further. It clarifies the moment of death. If we won't read the whole thing, but if you started in Genesis chapter 5, it would go through. It talks about Adam lived 930 years. It says, and then he died. Didn't have to say those last few words, but it did. Mentions Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalel, a guy named Jared. None of these people are famous, but it says how long they lived, and then he died, it says, in every case. And that's doing two things. One, it is showing that the death God promised, for lack of a better word, would, that would follow on the heels of the rebellion in the Garden of Eden, that death was happening. So God had enacted the judgment that was necessary because of mankind's rebellion. The death he talked about in Genesis 3 is happening to everybody. And, and it also sets a stage for a surprise. Because in one case, it's not going to happen. So let's look at these, this very quick description, a little bit cryptic even, of the life of Enoch. It says, if I can get that ahead, there we go. Nope, that wouldn't be it. I think we got a slide there, guys. Oh, there we go. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. And he became, after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God, and then he was no more because God took him away. What in the world? That is a unique moment in all of the Bible. And there's two remarkable facts that come out of this passage. One, the most obvious one that we probably think about first. What do you mean? He, he didn't die? He just went straight to heaven without passing through death? Remarkable fact number one is he was no more because God took him away. Only one other person in all of the Bible didn't die. The only other one is Elijah, the prophet from the Old Testament, would live many, many years after Enoch. And there's a very dramatic moment where a chariot from heaven comes down and whisks him away straight to heaven in the presence of his assistant. Only twice in all of the Bible are there people who, for whatever reason, God said, you come home with me now, and you're not going to die on the way. Can you imagine what that must have been like? To stand there next to him and find, oh, where'd Enoch go? (laughs) He's in heaven now. What? That just doesn't happen. Everybody else died except him. And if you wonder what in the world caused that, well, there's no mystery here because the other remarkable fact of this passage is Enoch walked faithfully with God. That's only said about one other person in this section of the Bible, about Noah in the very next chapter. 
That's pretty good company to be in. That's pretty high praise, especially because God is going to make very clear in that next chapter just how bad things have gotten. Just before he sends the flood, God summarizes how far downhill mankind has slid in sin, how far things had deteriorated from the Garden of Eden and the wonderful existence when God says in Genesis chapter 6, Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever. For he is mortal, his days will be 120 years. And before that, uh, he goes on to say, verse 5, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness was on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Friends, that's the background. That's That's the context in which Enoch finds himself. And in that terrible season, in that time when things went from bad to worse, one man stood out like a jewel against a black velvet background. One man's life, one man's walk with God pleased him so much that God said, he's coming with me now. And so that's why we get back to Romans chapter, uh, to Hebrews chapter 11. You'll need to advance the slide, guys, thank you. It says, for when he was taken, uh, back one, for when he was taken, there it is, he was commended as one who pleased God. That's the praise, folks. That's the moment when God says, you are different. Your life pleases me, Enoch. I want that, as we said. And how do we get there? Well, we recognize that what made Enoch stand out was the fact that he had this incredibly faithful walk with God in a time when that was not normal. At a time when that wasn't happening to just anybody. And that faith of Enoch becomes another chance as we zoom out back in Hebrews Another chance to to look back to that word faith. Because after it commends Enoch, it says this, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now notice, friends, it doesn't say, without faith, it's hard to please God. No. Without faith, it's what? Impossible to please God. And that faith is shown by when people come to him, and the word come there implies coming to worship him, we must recognize, we must believe that he exists and that he earnestly rewards those who seek him. To use our chair illustration again, I believe God exists, and I sit in that faith by saying, I know God earnestly rewards those who seek him. What are those rewards? The reward of forgiveness. He, he takes the problems of sin between me and him. And because of what Jesus did on the cross, he washes them away. He gives the reward of eternal life. Making someone like us totally unworthy of anything but his judgment. The reward of seeking him through faith in Jesus becomes, now we're qualified for heaven. Because of what God did, not because you and I work hard enough. He gives the reward of peace with him. We have peace with God. We were at war with him before we trusted him. And and now there's peace between us and our creator. He gives the reward of purpose in life, restoring us to the purpose for which he invented us. He created us. A purpose on which we turned our back. And now he says, okay, you're ready now to honor me, to please me, to give me glory, like Enoch did. He gives us the reward of family relationships with others who love him and know him. Family relationships that reach around the world. So we can celebrate with a a man like Jamal who prays for us in Arabic for crying out loud. Is that a powerful moment? It's because he's a brother. We're family. 
That's among the rewards that God promises to those who believe he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Friends, that's what we're called to. Those are the kind of people that please God. Those are the kind of people whose names wind up in Hebrews chapter 11. Those are the kind of people that skip death. Now, I can't promise that. Okay, that's a rare moment. Don't assume that. But even if we don't get taken right to heaven, just the walk with him is so worth it and so good. Who wouldn't want to walk with God? Who wouldn't want to walk faithfully with God like Enoch did? You know, it might seem like an answer. Well, nobody would be like, well, but we are. Two things get in the way of us realizing we can walk with God. One is we're not really sure he wants that. But how much more could he have done to prove he wants it? He came and walked with us. We just got done celebrating his birth. He lived our lives to show how much he wants to walk among us and with us. So if we think he doesn't want it, we're wrong. And if we think we're not qualified because of the kind of people we are, God would never want to walk with someone like me. Jesus points to the cross and says, I fixed that. I made it right. So bow the knee and, and, and commit to follow me. I came to walk with you. I want you to walk with me, Jesus said. And I did everything needed to make it possible. Friends, how's your walk with God? Are you walking with God through the faith that Hebrews 11 calls us to, the faith that Enoch modeled for us as an example? If you are, then you know it's not just Sunday. You know, it's not just coming here and singing songs and enjoying a sermon and going back to pretty much the same life you would have lived if Jesus weren't your Savior. No, a walk with God happens every day. It happens in the morning when you get up. It happens at noon. It happens in the evening. It's recognizing that he is with you all the time, available for you to pray to. You spend some time in his word because it encourages you. And each day is a walk with him, not just once a week. So how are you going to take this idea that it pleases God when our lives become trust-filled walks with him? How will Enoch be your example this week? How will your walk with God change? Because we spent time studying the life of this guy. Will you start walking with him for the first time? Maybe this whole idea is new to you. We're glad you're here and we want to help you get there. Ron, last week, gave a very clear invitation if you were here for people to, to take that first step with Jesus. And if that describes you, boy, run down here when the service is done. We got a Bible for you. We got a little card we want to give you. We want to walk you through that process because there's nothing better than walking with God. If you're not doing it yet, Come down and let us talk to you about it. Maybe you've already taken that first step, but you recognize I'm kind of stalled. I'm kind of stagnant. My walk with God is really sporadic and nothing that I think he's very excited about. Okay, how's it going to change this week? Will you increase a time of Bible reading and prayer? Will you start a time of Bible reading and prayer? Will you set your, set your phone to remind you two or three times a day, just a little beep, oh, God's here? <laughs> because we forget. We figure when we come to church to visit him and we go back out to our lives or we spend some time praying, okay, God is there, but the rest of the time we're kind of on our own. Remind yourself that every place you go, God is. And every, every place you are, God loves to be with you. And why not set aside some deep, intimate time in the midst of those days? Say, God, I know you're here and I'm glad you're here and I want my life to please you. I want to make you smile today. I want you to be glad that I'm walking with you. 
so that you're walking with me. Lord, I want to be like Enoch. Let's take him as an example this week, friends. And who knows, maybe God can say, like he did about Job, have you seen my servant John? Have you seen my servant Tom? Have you seen my servant Debbie? Have you seen my servant? They please me. Lord, did you show us how to be those kinds of people? Show us how to break free of whatever places were stalled or stagnant. Show us how to walk with you now in ways we had never have before. Show us how to enter into your presence, maybe for the first time, because of our trust in Jesus Christ. Lord, we can't do it alone. I'm so glad we can't do it alone. I'm so glad of all the times we need to depend on you that this is the most important one. So God, we turn ourselves over to you right now. We ask you to remind us this week for whatever, of whatever commitments we've made in these few minutes. Lord, may our walk with you change drastically and change beautifully and change in ways that will bring a smile to your face because we want to be those kinds of people, the kind of people you look at and say, wow, but it only happens because you make the changes in us. Lord, make it happen. Make it happen right now. Make it happen this week, and we'll give you all the glory for it. All God's people said, amen.